Well, good morning again. I want to welcome you back, invite you to return to your seats. Somebody said to me a minute ago, well, it was Stacy Blackwell, I might as well throw him under the bus. He says, you're preaching too? Like, you're pulling double duty. And, and I'm thinking, ever since I've been thinking, yeah, there are some churches where the pastors do do all of that every week, three times a week. I'm, uh, it's a kind of an unusual thing here. I'm grateful for the plurality of elders. I'm grateful to serve with two godly men. But if you're uh, new with us, my name is, I'm Pastor Steve, one of three pastors here at Piney Ridge Church, and it's my privilege to bring this message to you this morning. I want to start this morning by throwing out two scenarios, and I want you to listen to them and see how closely they align with where you are, okay? Okay. The first one is, you're a member of a Bible-teaching church. You're convinced that God is sovereign over all things, that He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and that He ordains the events of life, that no human will can resist Him. You believe Romans 8, 28 with all of your heart that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And yet, your sweet mother is in the hospital battling for her life. You're not ready to let her go. And so, you're praying for her to be healed. And yet there are some doubts playing in your mind and in your heart. If God, you believe that God has already ordained whether she is going to live or whether she's going to die. So what good is it to pray? Do your prayers even matter? Here's the second scenario. You have a dear friend who is not a follower of Christ. And you feel an urging that you need to go and share the gospel with him and her, him or her. But you've done that before and it didn't end well. The person was offended and they stormed off in anger and didn't speak to you for months. And you're not sure now that if you want to risk that again, but you really feel like you need to share the gospel, and yet does it really matter? Does it really matter if God has elected before the creation of the world who was going to be saved? What does it matter whether you share the gospel with that person? Either God has chosen them or not. Do you ever wonder about these things? I'm going to come clean and say I do. I still do sometimes. And it's just one of the things that's hard for us human beings with finite minds as we try to conceive of a God who is timeless, 
a God for whom past, present, and future are all present always. We can't conceive of that. And so some of the great truths of Scripture are hard for us. Sometimes those great truths seem contradictory to some of the commands that we're given. How can God be sovereign over all things and yet we're commanded to pray? How can God be sovereign over salvation and yet we're commanded to share the gospel? We need, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, spiritual wisdom to comprehend spiritual truth. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us and help us to understand and sort out these difficult concepts. And we need to build our faith and our theological knowledge on the foundation of the truth that God is faithful. The faithfulness of God undergirds and supports and upholds all of these seemingly irreconcilable truths. God is faithful. God is faithful to his covenant people that he has called out of spiritual death to new life, that he has called out of spiritual darkness into his marvelous light. And God is faithful to patiently teach these great truths of Scripture to his children, to help them grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding, to build within them the desire to doggedly cling to the doctrines of grace on one hand and glad-heartedly obey the commands of God on the other. The takeaway that I want you to have from today's message is God's people ought to pray and proclaim because God is faithful. God's people ought to pray and proclaim because God is faithful. I invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as I read today's sermon text from 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 3a. I invite you to have your Bibles or your Bible apps open throughout. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back tables. Feel free to go grab one. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take it with you. It's our gift to you. But I think it would be helpful for you to have your Bibles open to this passage throughout the message. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray this morning that you would work within our hearts and our minds, that your glory would be on display, that you would help us to see more clearly through the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to understand spiritual truths this morning. And Lord, I pray that I won't get in the way. Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. So, Lord, I humbly submit to you this morning. Speak through me, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to briefly point out that the passage begins this morning with the word finally. 
finally, is the word that most people wait to hear on the edge of their seats during sermons because they know that maybe there's only a half hour left. For Paul, it means I'm about to go into my final argument, my final exhortations, my final encouragements. And I'm switching topics. But it doesn't necessarily mean that what I'm about to say is completely disconnected from what I just said. In fact, we're going to see this morning that all that Paul says this morning is in light of what he has just said. So it starts with finally. And then with that brief word, I want to let you know that I'm going to work backward through the passage this morning. I'm going to work backward because 3A, but the Lord is faithful, forms the foundation for all that Paul says. Paul is asking the Thessalonians to pray for him and his companions because God is faithful. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. God is faithful to answer our prayers better than we can ask. God commands his children to pray And he is faithful to listen, and he delights to answer. Paul asks them to pray that the word of God would be effective because God is steadfastly faithful to accomplish all that he has said he will do. As we sang earlier this morning, God's word is eternal. God's word is true. God's word is trustworthy. In Isaiah 55, we read God saying through the prophet, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. God is faithful to see that his word accomplishes all that it sets out to do. Paul asks the missionaries to pray that God will deliver them from wicked and evil men, because while people are faithless, God is faithful. God's steadfast love extends to the heavens and his faithfulness to the clouds. And Paul trusts that because he is a part of the covenant people of God, that God will be faithful to rescue him. And he trusts that even if he is afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, that God will be able and is faithful to sustain him so that he will not be crushed, nor driven to despair, nor forsaken nor destroyed. Paul trusts in the faithfulness of God to answer the prayers of his people. And therefore, he asks the Thessalonians to pray for these things. And I think we need to remind ourselves on a regular basis that God is faithful. We need to pray for a rock-solid assurance that he is faithful because, guess what? That tends to to be one of the first things we forget when we're undergoing trials. And yet is the one thing that we need to remember 
in order to help us endure patiently through those trials. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and your salvation from the wrath of God, then you are a part of the covenant people of God. And God has sworn an oath which to be your God and for you to be his people, which means that he will never leave you nor forsake you, and he will cause you to persevere to the end of your life. This covenant oath that God has taken is an unshakable oath. It's an unbreakable oath. God will be faithful to the covenant he's made with his people, and if you are part of the covenant people of God, he will be faithful to you. So if you're facing a trial, excuse me, this morning, bask in the faithfulness of God. Sandy, I forgot to bring my water up. Would you please bring it to me? Ask God to strengthen you to trust in him. I want you to notice that verse 3 starts with the word but. Thank you, sweetie. But God is faithful. That word is, says that there's a contrast between what comes before and what comes after. It says, but the Lord is faithful. But what comes before that? For not all have faith. There's a contrast there between the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of people. And yet, that's not the main point of this text. And so I just want to spend a minute to say this. I think the reason that so many of us struggle with trusting that God is faithful is because of our experiences that we have in this life with people who are not faithful. And we need to be careful not to uh, put God in a box, not to define for ourselves who God is based on our our experiences with faithless people. God is faithful. The people often are not. However, in this passage, the faithlessness of men speaks more to their lack of faith in God. In verse 2, Paul asks for prayers that the missionaries will be delivered from wicked and evil men, for, he says, not all men have faith. These people are wicked and evil because they lack faith in God. And the absence of faith in God means that they're unconverted, that they have not had new life birthed in them, that they do not have the Spirit of God living in them, and therefore they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And they're following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They refuse to love the truth. They take pleasure in evil and they're enemies of God. Paul wants God to deliver him from these wicked and evil people. The identity of these faithless men is the topic of much debate among commentators. Paul could be speaking of the pagans that made up much of the population in his day in that area. 
He may have in mind the Jews that dogged him from town to town, uh, persecuting him and his companions. Or he may be thinking of unconverted people within the church who caused divisions and teach false doctrines as he was, that he was addressing in the beginning of chapter 2. But regardless of their identity, the root cause of their wickedness and evilness is that they lack faith in Jesus Christ. And these faithless men and women not only stand in stark contrast to Paul's faithful God, but they provide motivation to Paul to ask the Thessalonians to pray. Paul says, pray for us in verse 1. Pray for us. I find it interesting that Paul exhorts them to pray after he's just finished giving thanks to God for the fact that he chose the Thessalonians to be saved and he called them through the preaching of the gospel. In other words, he's just been exalting in the sovereignty of God over salvation. And then he says, and pray for us. As I said in the introduction, many people struggle with this idea of prayer in light of the sovereignty of God. Perhaps you're struggling with that very thing today. Perhaps you're wondering what good it is to pray if God has already ordained the result of what you're praying for. Or maybe you don't consciously work through those thoughts, but the evidence of your life says that you do have that feeling inside of you, the evidence of prayerlessness, the evidence of a lack of fervency in your prayer or a lack of perseverance in your prayer or a lack of excited anticipation in your prayers. And so to help us with this, I want to go back two weeks when Pastor Jason was preaching to us from 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, and he talked about the fact that God not only ordains the results, but ordains the means. You remember that? I want to read that passage real quick to you. We ought always, Paul says, to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and a belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 13, Paul says God chose you to be saved. And in verse 14, he says that he called you to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the results. God has ordained those already. But in 13, he says that you were saved through the sanctification of the Spirit and a belief in the truth. And in 14, he says, he called you through our gospel. So if we put those together, God called and chose those Thessalonians to be saved, but he saved them through the preaching of the gospel, through the sanctification of the Spirit that enabled them, that birthed new life in them and enabled them to believe. God ordains the results of salvation, but he also ordains the means that he will use 
to bring people to him, and that is through the proclamation of the gospel by his people. Similarly, that's how God works through prayer. We are finite people with finite minds who move through this world through time in one direction, right? We don't know. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But for God, all of that's present. He does. He knows. He's ordained it. And so God has ordained that he will act in this world through the prayers of his saints. Your prayers are the means that he uses to get the results that he's ordained. And he uses those prayers not just to get those, those results, but he uses them to sanctify you. He commands us to pray so that we will be increased in our faith. He commands us to pray so that we will humbly acknowledge that we need him, that he is powerful and we're not, that he is God and we're not. After all, what is prayer more than just an acknowledgement that we need help, right? God commands you to pray because that's the means he uses to achieve his results, but he also commands you to pray because you need him, and you need to grow in your faith, and you need to grow in your perseverance, and you need to grow in your humility commands you to pray, and he answers because he is faithful. But what if you're praying for something that God hasn't ordained? Well, let me just use an example from my life. My daughter was diagnosed with Meniere's disease. It's a disease of the inner ear that causes her to be dizzy and have vertigo. And she's had it for now, I don't know, six, seven years, and I've been praying for God to heal her. Okay? I don't know whether God has ordained that she'll be healed. To my knowledge, she is not yet healed, although she's had a good year. So maybe he has. But I don't know that. I don't know because I'm not God. My knowledge is not perfect. And so what do I do? Do I sit here and I go, well, I don't know if that's God's will, so maybe I won't pray for it? God forbid. Instead, I continue to pray and pray and pray. God wants us to persevere in our prayers. He gave the parable in Luke 18 so that the disciples would persevere in prayer. The parable of the widow who was unjustly treated. And she went to the unjust judge and pounded on his door and demanded justice, and he refused to give it to her. But she kept going back day after day after day, and the judge finally said, I'm going to give her justice or she's going to drive me nuts. And Jesus' point was that if an unjust judge will do that, how much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you, who is perfectly just, and perfectly good, how much more will he give you what you ask for? 
We need to persevere in prayer. Secondly, we need to pray with confident acknowledgement of his sovereignty. Here's what I mean by that. I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel. And they refused to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar's idol. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them in. He said, all right, here's your choice. Bow down to the idol or I'm going to throw you into this overheated furnace. And what did they say? They said, our God is able to deliver us from your overheated furnace. But if not, we still will not bow down before your idol. God can deliver us from that fire if he so chooses. Or God may deliver us through the fire, which is what he did. They were tossed into the furnace, and the people that taught the furnace was so hot, the people that tossed them in burned up. They were incinerated immediately. But they weren't burned up. But in their hearts, although the Bible doesn't say it, I am confident that they also had that third option in their minds, that if God chooses for us to burn up in this fire, praise the Lord. We still will not bow down before your idol. And that's the kind of confident assurance that we ought to have when we pray. Lord, I really want my daughter to be healed. But if not, I will continue to worship you. If not, help her to persevere through this trial. And third, and this is best of all, if you are a child of God, you have two advocates who are constantly praying for you. You have the Almighty Son of God, Jesus Christ, the resurrected and ascended Jesus who is bodily in heaven next to the throne of grace who is constantly mediating on your behalf the covenant of grace and interceding on your behalf. And guess what? He doesn't have to wonder what he's praying is the will of God because he is God. But not only that, you have if you're a child of God, you have the Spirit of God living within you. I love Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He intercedes according to the will of God because He is God. So if you don't know, and I don't know whether I, what I'm praying for my daughter, if that's what God has ordained to do, but I'm going to keep praying until I get some kind of clear message, and I don't know how that message will come, but unless I get a clear message to stop praying, I'm going to keep praying. And I'm going to pray with confidence. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit also to help me in my prayers, to perfect my prayers. And to pray for my daughter according to the will of God. 
Now back in verse 1 of our passage, in light of the sovereignty of God, Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for him and his companions, and there are two prayer requests. The first is that the word of the Lord will speed ahead and be honored. Paul's asking him to pray that the gospel that he's preaching will bear fruit. And once again, here's a concept we struggle with, right? If God is sovereign over salvation, if he alone is the causal factor in salvation, if he chose the elect before the foundation of the world, then what need is there for evangelism? Well, let me remind you again what Pastor Jason said. God not only ordains the results, he ordains the means. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Faith comes through the proclaimed gospel. And I want to tell you that rather than hindering evangelism, our certainty of the sovereignty of God over salvation ought to inspire and motivate us to share the gospel. You want to know why? Because I spent many years afraid to share the gospel because I didn't think I could do it good enough. I thought, well, I've got to convince these people to be saved. I'm afraid I won't know all the answers if they ask me. Right? I don't have anything to do with it. Guess what success in evangelism is? Sharing the gospel. That's success. That's victory. Because it's up to God what he does with it. We ought to count it a privilege that God would include us in his great work of salvation. And you know what sharing the gospel does for us? It makes the gospel that much sweeter to us. It stirs our affections for God and for his gospel and fills us with joy and motivates us to sow, more, sow seeds further. And here Paul emphasizes the role of the word of God. He says, I want you to pray that the word of the Lord will speed ahead and be honored. This is the same image that Paul uses of himself when he's running the race so as to win the prize. Only this time, the runner is the gospel. And we know that God's word will accomplish all that it sets out to do, so we know that this victory is assured, right? God's word will be victorious, and it will be honored. And so Paul says, pray that it will speed ahead and be honored. Pray that the word of God will go and the Holy Spirit will take it and it'll fall on fertile soil and he'll bring forth life and bear fruit. And thus God will be honored in that person's life. and God will be glorified. God's people ought to rejoice that he has ordained them to play a vital role in spreading the gospel. But again, you might have this question in your mind. Why would Paul ask us to pray for something that's a sure thing? Well, let me give you another scenario. Suppose you have a son or a daughter or maybe a grandson or a granddaughter or maybe a brother or sister or niece or a nephew that is participating in the Olympics. They're an Olympic swimmer. 
And they race in that longest race that's indoors, 1,500 meters, up and back 15 times, 30 laps. Takes forever to watch, right? And there they go. They jump in. And after about five laps, your loved one is there among the leaders, but it's nose to nose. And they're going through five laps, 10 laps, 15 laps, and they're still right there. About three leaders have broken away from the pack now, and there, there are three of them that are nose to nose, and your loved one is right there among them, and you're cheering your lungs out, right? And about the 25th lap, your loved one starts to pull ahead. They push off from the wall, and by the time they get to the next wall, they're a half body length ahead. And by the time they get to the next wall, they're a full body length ahead. And then it's almost like everybody else is, is just standing still. They're pulling ahead, pulling ahead, two body links, three body links with three laps to go. Victory seems assured, right? And what are you going to do? Oh, well, it's over. I might as well go home. That's not what I'm going to do. If my granddaughter is out there swimming and she's going to win, I'm going to cheer that much louder. I'm going to blow my lungs out. I'm going to raise the roof. Well, guess what? That's kind of what we're doing when we're praying for God's Word to speed ahead and be honored. Paul tells the Thessalonians to pray that way. And I believe that's a prayer that God delights to hear and eager to answer. How do, what does that mean for us? Well, I think right here in the United States, that would be a good thing to be praying, that God's word would speed ahead and be honored, right? That more people would come to know him as their savior. It would be a great thing to pray for the people in Southeast Asia where we have a missionary family. It would be a great thing to pray for the people of Russia, for the people of Ukraine, for the people around the world. God's people ought to spend time praying that the word of the Lord will speed ahead and be honored. Then he also says, pray that we will be delivered from wicked and evil men. And then he has that word for, right? What does that word mean? That's a purpose word, right? You can kind of take the passage and it says, pray for us, da -da 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 -da. for not all men have faith, but God is faithful. Do you see there are two motivations there for prayer? Paul says, pray that we'll be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all men have faith. There were wicked and evil persons who were devoting their lives. Their number one ambition was to halt the progress of the gospel. And Paul suffered great tribulation from those people beatings and floggings, imprisonments, and he was even stoned once. So Paul says, pray that we will be delivered from these evil and wicked men. 
for not all have faith. And one way, one way that, that he could be delivered from those wicked and evil men is if the word of God sped ahead and was honored and they were saved. But another would be to pray that God will keep these people from, advance, from halting the advance of the gospel. Again, in the United States, I think that would be a great thing to pray. Pray, pray that, for example, laws will not be enacted that prohibit us from gathering together, that pro prohibit us from sharing the gospel. So the first motivation for Paul to ask the Thessalonians to pray is the faithlessness of men. And the second motivation is where we started. God is faithful. God alone is powerful to make his word speed ahead and be honored. God alone is able to deliver Paul and his companions from wicked and evil men. God's people ought to pray and proclaim because God is faithful. The applications of this message are straightforward. Just look at the theme of the message, right? Pray. Pray. Don't let Satan deceive you that prayer is not necessary because of the sovereignty of God. For the truth is, Prayer ought to be motivated precisely because our faithful God is sovereign and powerful. Pray for the advancement of the gospel. Pray that God will send laborers to sow the seeds of the gospel and laborers to reap the harvest here in Wentzville, in the United States and throughout the world. Pray that our church will continue to honor the word of God and seek to advance the gospel in our community. Pray for our missionary family in Southeast Asia and other missionaries around the world that they won't be hindered by faithless people. And pray that God will keep those faithless people from hindering the advancement of the gospel here at home and around the world. Pray. Second application, proclaim. Proclaim the gospel. Participate in the advancement of the gospel. Seek to sow seeds of the gospel among your family and your friends and your neighbors in the workplace. And dare I say, dare I step up on my soapbox and say, and on social media. Don't avoid becoming involved in worthless debates. And seek to use your platform to sow seeds of the gospel. And test to see if what I said was true. That the sharing of the gospel enhances your appreciation of the gospel. The sharing of the gospel increases your delight in the gospel. Pray, proclaim, and fight for a solid belief in the faithfulness of God. Search the Bible for passages that assert his faithfulness. Meditate on those passages. Preach the truth of his faithfulness to yourself. Talk with or listen to others 
who share with you a belief that God is faithful and who live in accordance with his faithfulness. Cling to his faithfulness when you're afflicted by trials. Don't give Satan the opportunity to deceive you with lies. Pray and proclaim because God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray this morning with great expectancy that you will work in our hearts through this word to form within us a commitment to pray regularly and to regularly share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Lord, I pray that you will, that your word will speed ahead and be honored. I pray that you will deliver us from wicked and evil men. And I pray that you will do more than we ask because you are faithful. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.